Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. For my first episode in 2020, I am pleased to introduce Mr. Bill Hard. Bill was the executive vice president and principal of Elcor, a regional development firm headquartered in Philadelphia, but has the local office here in Washington, D.C. Bill managed that office from 1994 until his retirement in 2018. Bill had several accomplishments during his tenure leading that office, including the U.S. Patent and Trade Office project in Alexandria, which was a nine-year odyssey of development and approval for a four-building, 2.4 million square foot with parking garages that is in the Carlisle area of Alexandria, the largest federal lease in the country. And uh, it was quite an ordeal. We talk about that. We also talk about the 2.7 million square foot development in the North Bethesda of the White Flint Metro location, including an office building and four residential projects. He then, more recently, right before his retirement, got started with a project in Tyson's Corner called the Commons, which will eventually deliver over 2,500 units. So he had those, among other projects in the city, which he talks about. We talk about his family, his growing up in suburban Philadelphia, as well as his children, two of his boys being in the real estate business, one of whom works at Elcor. And we talk also about his personal philosophies. Bill is a very engaging and hardworking guy and is looking back fondly on his, uh, his excellent career. So without further ado, here is Bill Hard. Bill, welcome to the podcast today. Thank you, John. Looking forward to it. Thank you. So, Bill, you recently retired from Elcor in the Washington, D.C. area. Tell us a little bit about Elcor. It's the company and also about what you did at Elcor, what your role was there. Sure. Quick story on Elcor is we came out of a company called Linpro. And prior to that, it was Lincoln Property Company Northeast. So the quick story is we were Lincoln Property Company Northeast until 1977 from the late 60s, and then started with an office here actually in 1972 in the DC market, and then formed uh, Linpro in 1978 until 1992 when we formed Elcor coming out of the, one of the three recessions I've been through as a real estate developer. And then from, from 92 on, we've been Elcor, which is probably more than half our history at this point. I ran the DC office from about 1994 until my retirement at the end of uh, 2018. I was also on the executive committee of the company looking at uh, investment opportunities, primarily development related uh, in other offices. We have three offices, one in New York City, our headquarters in, in Philadelphia, which is also a development office, and then the DC office. 
So your footprint was just Washington area? Was it include Baltimore? I mean, what markets did you get more? We 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 te- we did the D.C. office technically would cover the entire state of Maryland, the District of Columbia, and and Virginia. We arrived at a decision very early on in my tenure with the company that. D.C. was such a vibrant market, it didn't make a whole lot of sense to try to focus outside of the metropolitan area. So we have really have stuck to, since the mid-90s, to the close-in suburbs of Washington, D.C. and the district itself. Talk a little bit more about Elcor's business in, in this marketplace, what you had been doing when you started here, and then how it's evolved since sure. that time. Well, I joined the company in 1981. Uh, in our Philadelphia office working on finance. I think maybe we may get to it, but I was a commercial banker prior to joining, jo- joining the company. Came down here in January of 82. And at the time, the company did about 50% garden apartment development, typical suburban greenfields type opportunities, and about 50% uh, suburban office buildings. So we really focused on that. When I first came down here in 82 and 85, I opened an office for the company in Reston. Virginia closed it five years later in the uh, in the crunch that was started from the late 80s to the mid 90s, and then once we had transitioned to Elcor, the focus became very much closer in suburbs or the district itself, high rise development, mixed use, with our affiliation with California State Teachers Retirement System in 2012. The focus of the company has been entirely on mixed use, primarily residential focused but with office components, retail components, senior housing components, hotel components, some of which we might develop and some of which we would bring others in to develop on our, on our behalf or for their own benefit. So the transition away from the garden business occurred right around 1990, 92 in that range? I think in the D.C. office, it was really coming out of the slump, in our view, in the mid-90s. Our first high rise was in the late, late 90s in the district and in Arlington. We felt at the time that it was almost a different business than the suburban garden yes. apartment development uh, business. Thankfully, our senior and our, our, our founder and our senior partner had some really good contacts with Lincoln Property and actually was very helpful in getting us some operating information so we get, get a sense as to how much does it cost to run right. these things. Right. You can figure out the rent pretty well, but the operating expenses were tricky. Once we got comfortable with that, we moved forward, and really that's primarily what we've been doing. Well, the land use issues are con- considerably different too, of course. Always. And it, and it always comes, seems like it always comes down to parking. So right. there are diff- right. there's certainly different right. issues there. And there, there are cost issues because you're yeah. dealing typically with a concrete structure and not a, not a wood frame. So Bill, let's peel back a little bit to your background um, and try to understand, you know, how you came into this role and what, uh, what brought you here a little bit. So talk a little bit about, you know, your Origin story here a little bit. <laughs> We're heading back to the 50s, John. Okay. Yeah, I was uh, born in 1950. Actually, be, I'll be 70 at the end of this month. And I grew up in a very typical kind of middle-class family, suburban community outside of Philadelphia. I had a mom and a dad and a brother and two sisters. And it seemed like every family on our street had at least that, if not more. My dad was a typical guy coming back from the military. He served five and a half years in the Navy in World War II. They tell the story about getting married when he got a, he got a uh, last-minute leave from the uh, Pacific Fleet, got to San Francisco, and sent my mom a wire saying, who was in Pittsburgh with her <laughs> folks, 
sent, sent mom a wire saying, uh, honey, I'm going to take some troop trains across the country. Uh, let's get married. And uh, they got married in 1943. Wow. Um, and we're During married. the war. During the war. And then he turned around and went back out to the Pacific and ended up on a, a light destroyer that got torpedoed. And uh, we were so I was very glad he came back, um, <laughs> as was my brother and two sisters. But we had a very kind of stable upbringing. He was a... Was he a native Philadelphian? No, they were my, both my folks were, were New Englanders, one from Massachusetts and one from Rhode Island. Mm-hmm. In fact, my name is Roger William and sort really? of named after the founder of, of, of Rhode Island, Island, although there's another family story to that that I don't yeah. need to get into. Very stable upbringing. The expectation was you're going to be a, you know, you're going to be a nice person. You're going to, you know, do well in school. My dad was a salesman for a company called Ream Manufacturing. He sold steel shipping containers to a lot of the chemical companies around the Philadelphia and Wilmington area. And then my mom was a stay-at-home mom, raised the four of us, very active in the community, active in the church. I describe my background at people and they're like, that sounds really boring. (laughs) I'm like, you know what? It gave me some really good foundational values that I think I've realized as I've gotten older and had to raise a family of my own. You went to high school there locally? Well, that's actually probably the best story of my growing up. We were living outside of Philadelphia and ironically, about five miles from the headquarters of our company today. And my dad announced that he'd been transferred got a promotion, was transferred in, transferred in Northern Jersey. It was midway through my junior year of high school. Um, yeah, I, interesting is not the word I used <laughs> at the time. So I was within a month of getting my driver's license in Pennsylvania because uh-huh, you, uh-huh. you can drive sure. at 16 in Pennsylvania. You can guess that, that the driving age in New Jersey was 17. And I was young for my age, which means I could not get my driver's license until April of my senior year of high school. And you just got kind of ripped up and moved to North Jersey from an area that I'd you know, been my entire life. The best part about that was uh, my first day of high school, I didn't know anybody. And a rather cute young woman in front of me turns around and sticks out her hand and introduces herself. And it's my current wife. So that made lemonade out of lemons, I can tell you that. And you knew at that moment? or uh... Well, there's a little bit of a family myth that's actually, I think, true. I, I came home that she was dating some guy who's actually very friendly with me, but nice guy. We had our first date that summer. I got home from that date and I told my younger brother that I was going to marry her. Wow. And, wow. and I did. <laughs> it's the best decision I ever made. <laughs> with real estate a close second. Mm-hmm. So then... Uh... College game. Yeah, went off to, uh, went to Lafayette College in Eastern Pennsylvania, small liberal arts college. At the time, it was all male. We had 1,800 guys my senior year. The school went co-ed. So there were, in the senior, in the class of the first class of women, there were 43 women and 1,800 guys on campus. At that point, I was engaged to be married, so it didn't really matter to school. me. Yeah, yeah. As a freshman? Well, well, no, in my last year, my senior, oh, senior, year, senior college. college okay, the so you've college. been dating all this time. Yeah, we had, you know, a little bit of on and off that was my, uh, instigated by me, but that was my big, that's one of my biggest mistakes. So I finished Lafayette in 71. That was the height of the Vietnam draft. Right. So I, in my junior year, had joined the uh, National Guard. There were 12 guys in my fraternity. I was the only one who did any kind of military service. And it's a stretch to call joining the National Guard military service, at least at that time. Certainly not now, but at that time. 
So I did that, went off for active duty, came back in December of 71. My wife and I got married. I started graduate school at the University of Pennsylvania in uh, January of... At the Wharton uh, School? No. Would that I have gone to the Wharton School? Uh, (laughs) No, I was an international relations major at Lafayette. Uh And I had a brother-in-law at the time who was an international banker for Citibank. And I thought, that looks pretty cool. So I went into the international relations uh, master's program at Penn and barely got out. But I got out. And then from there, I graduated in December. It was a one-year program. So I finished in December of 72. The economy was pretty slow, but I was able ultimately to find a job at uh, Philadelphia National Bank. And I think the Penn Diploma opens doors in Philadelphia. Sure. Even though it wasn't Wharton, I think the fact that I got into Penn and I managed mm-hmm. barely to get out, it helped uh, help the bank. Why banking? Made. It was the first job offer I had. It seemed like a really stable career. I was really immature, so I really didn't know what other alternatives I had. I'm here, I'm, you know, I've got a liberal arts background, uh, so I had no specific training. I was a field wireman in the, uh, in the National Guard, so there's no, uh, I wasn't going to go work for the electric company based on that resume. So, uh, yeah, it's, and it seemed like a good place to start in business, to learn a little bit about business, corporations, accounting. Mm-hmm. Sure. There is a funny story with my first assignment at the bank. Okay. I, I joined in, in April of 73, as I said. I had neglected to take any accounting courses, either undergrad or grad, and you needed to take accounting to get into the credit training program at the bank. Mm -hmm. So I went to St. Joseph's at night to take accounting 101 and 102. And that summer, because I was unqualified to do anything else, I worked in a retail branch at, at, uh, at the main branch, the main retail branch at PNB, directing customers as to which teller was currently available. <laughs> and doing uh, and running uh, running gopher duties for the tellers who are very sweet and very nice to this young, impressionable and very green young man. Sure. Yeah. But then I got into the credit training program, did pretty well in it. When I wrapped up, I had a choice of one of three assignments within the bank. Two of them did not appeal to me. And the third one was something called the Real Estate Investment Trust Division, which made loans to REITs. And I said, well... In 1974? 1974. That's yeah. early in the REIT years. Well, it was not... Well, not for the mortgage REITs. That's right. These were, all more, right. these were not equity REITs. And they these, were struggling at that time, some of them. That's a kind word. Um, <laughs> they, it, I, it was... Bloodbath. It was a bloodbath. Yeah. And, but I will, I will say, John, one of the... I mean, there's a lot of luck in all of our careers... I, I think. And some of it is being in a position to take advantage of that. But in 1975, the bank decided that they wanted me to run the liquidation of the, really? re- of the REIT division. Interesting. We had $120 million worth of loans to 21 wow. customers. And I had the, uh, they made me the youngest commercial officer in the bank at the time. I flew around the country trying to work out deals wow. with my fellow creditors and with the, and with uh, and with our debtors, with, with the REITs. So I... What a learning experience that was. I, I remember sitting on an airplane with an executive vice president of the bank, great guy, and a typical button-down Philadelphia banker, mm-hmm. very conservative. Sure. And Frank turned to me and said, you know, Bill, you're learning all of... Th- this is the best learning opportunity you could ever have because you're going to see all the mistakes mm-hmm. and you're not going to get blamed for any of them. 
And he was absolutely right. And it's the first time I really start to understand risk in our business. So I wrapped that up, liquidated the portfolio, kind of in the 77 time frame, mm-hmm. and then did four years of construction lending before joining uh, Lintro at the time uh, in 1981. Were they a client of yours? Yes. They were actually the biggest client of, biggest real estate client of Philadelphia National. And I was assigned to handle some of their Philadelphia area projects, but but also to have the relationship with the, with the Washington, D.C. office. So I had uh, three and a half years of, almost, I guess, almost four years of construction lending and uh, ended up with Linpro, the predecessor to Elcor, kind of by happenstance. I was driving around Northern Virginia in the senior partner, Linpro senior partner, 450 Canary Yellow Mercedes SL. And top was down and it was a beautiful day. And I'd had an offer to join a real estate equity firm up in Philadelphia. And I was thinking I'd been to the bank with the bank, you know, close to eight years at that point. And if I was ever going to take, do something different, now would be the time. So the partner turned to me and I'm, I'm not sure if I was flattered or not, but he said, well, Bill, if you, we kind of like we're having you at the bank, which is a bank where you're not sure you want to hear because maybe you give them too good a term on your, on your loans. <laughs> but he said, we've talked about you internally. And if you ever decided to leave, we'd like you to join us. But you have to come to D.C. We'd want you to be in a developer. We want to make you a developer in D.C. And I'm like, OK, let me talk to my wife, who was pregnant with our first child at the time. I worked out a deal with the company where we stayed in Philadelphia until our child was born. And we kind of had our feet on the ground being new parents and then came down to D.C. in January of 82. How did the bank feel when you left them, or did they care? I, yeah, I don't think it made much much difference matter. to them. To tell you the truth, mm-hmm. no, I, I was a vice president, but you know, right. we had lots of vice presidents at the bank. It was a very good bank, and I got great training and great mm-hmm. education. Really, really good people. I called my dad to tell him I was changing jobs, and I described what I was working, what I was going to do. And my dad's a guy who came out of the navy and didn't leave his job for 37 years right. until he retired. Right. And my dad had two reactions. One was, it sounds like a pyramid scheme and <laughs> you're going to get a reputation as a job hopper, even though I'd been with the bank eight years. Oh my goodness. Well, it turns out I was with Limpro slash Elcor longer than my dad was with his company. So mm-hmm. at least I proved him wrong in that respect. <laughs> so your first assignment then as you came aboard down here. <laughs> it was interesting, John, because my, right? yeah, I came down here in 82. 82 okay. So I did some financings for the company up in Philadelphia because yep. that's what I knew and came down here and our offices were up in Germantown in a farmhouse and we had our neighbors were cows and snakes primarily. Was that because it was your first project up there or was that? Yes. Like, there was a, it's no longer called the colony, the co- the colony but it's the colony apartments in Germantown. And they said, well, we have an office building that we're building based on an office building we had developed in northern New Jersey, exact same set of floor plans, so no change relative to the market, in Reston, Virginia, and you're going to lease it. And I'm like, I got two questions. How do you get to Reston from Germantown? <laughs> and that's before the toll road yes, is open. Of course. And yeah. there used to be, I used to be a saying in the brokerage industry that the longest drive in northern Virginia was from Tyson's Corner to Reston with a prospect. 
because you had to explain to them, you know, you're going out and making Rumps, lefts and lefts and rights. And yeah, and it's, it was a long 30 minute drive. And my other question was, how do you lease a building? I mean, I had no idea. But my first lease was a full building lease to AT&T. Worked with a uh, coal banker at the time. It was actually the biggest lease I did until the project we'll get to down yes. the road came along called the Patent and Trademark Office. Right. So I did, I leased that building, helped develop the second building. And then in the middle of all that, we opened the office and I started looking for land in, in Northern Virginia. Cool. Yeah. So cool. it was a, it was a trial by fire. As we talked about earlier, my recollection, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that Elcor was primarily a, a garden apartment developer at that time. Although the evolution, I know that Lincoln Property Company had become a more of a integrated mixed-use development mm-hmm. company. And I guess LinPro was kind of an offshoot of that, right, at the time? Right. We were, fi- we were 50-50 between office and, and residential. Oh, even at that time? Even at, oh, yeah. Even at that time. I, in fact, most of the land that I bought in the late 80s was office land. I did do, we bought some apartment ground out in Manassas. Right. But we had a site in Chantilly. We had a site in Tyson's. had a site in Herndon. They were all office-oriented. Interesting. Interesting. So talk about LinPro's partnerships structure at that time and how that's evolved since, since that time into Elcor. Well, it's called, it's called night and day, John. <laughs> <laughs> Explain that. We were, well, we were very much on the Lincoln model at the time, which was a company that started by Trey McCrow and Mac Pogue. Basically, our, the way we structured our transactions then was, well, the partners of the company owned, all, owned 100% of the operating company. And then we structured individual projects with individual capital structures. So uh, if we had a deal that we wanted to do, I, we had to go out and find the equity. We had to go out and find the debt. And depending upon where you were in the company structure, you would be a partner in that transaction. We were all general partners. So when I opened the office in 85 and we bought four pieces of property, like within probably a year, year and a half of, of opening that office, I was a small general partner in, in each of those transactions. So you got a salary. wasn't a lot to live on, but it was so enough to get by. From 1982 to 85, you were just learning the business at that yes. time, right? Yeah, yeah. My first partnership was in 85. Okay. And then when we got through, when we hit the late 80s, and you as well as I remember what happened there, you know, stay alive till 95 was the, uh, was the catchphrase of the day. We'd expanded nationally. We had 23 offices in 14 states. We were out in California. We were in Colorado. We were in Texas. We were everywhere. Anybody ever thought that we ought to be? Did you ever compete with Lincoln Property Company, or how did no, that work? Totally so, separate. Really? To- yeah. No, okay. no, we competed head on with them and with Trammell Crow. We hit the late 80s. The economy crashed. That was the SNL crisis that a lot of this current generation has absolutely no idea what happened, but it felt a lot like what happened in, you know, 08 to well, pick, pick your end year, but you know, 12, 12 was what yeah. I'd go with. It was a lot like that in terms I think it was worse. The most recent one or the one? No, in, the 91, 89, 90. Uh, you know, it, it, was wor- it was worse for our company, but for different reasons that I should probably get to at some point. But we saw we were going to make our way out of the, the recession of the, of the late 80s, early 90s. But decided being a general partner on all those construction loans, which was basically personal guarantees, was not a great idea. No. So we converted to a corporate format 
in 92. So we started going to limited liability companies. So that we kind of ran, but again, still having to structure individual transactions with individual capital partners, depending upon what the deal From was. From a real estate standpoint, though, when you think about 1989-90 compared to 2007-89, wouldn't you say, though, that the, the Washington market took a much bigger hit in the first recession than the second one? I think that is true uh, from a valuation perspective. Right. There's, there's no question about that. It did. I mean, I'll, we'll get it. We'll get into it down the road. But actually, the, re- the the recession of you know 08 to 12 actually ended up being a very fortuitous occurrence for our company. It really helped make us what we are today. So from '85 on, you were doing you know various mixed use yeah. projects. Well, they, they were primarily single use. Uh, yeah, garden apartments and, and look, office looking for office suburban office. Mostly. Yes. Yeah, we did not have anything in the district. One of my partners developed a building at 1425 New York Avenue, but I, I was not involved in that. You ran the office from 85 on, basically? Is that- I, I ran a Reston office from 85 to 90. Okay. Then we closed that office and consolidated. We had three offices in the D.C. area. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, we had a small satellite office in New Carrollton, and our main office was in Silver Spring, and then I had the Reston office. So in 90, we consolidated all three into one because the economy was contracting and we were hanging on by our fingertips to keep in business. And that was, that was a lesson in and of itself in terms of having to you know, basically close down an office that I built from scratch. I, mean, I started with me, built it to about 15 people and took it back to me, um, wow. which was a learning experience, but a, a tough one. It's, it's, it's hard to... Laying people off is not an easy thing, is it? No, I can remember my first hire, the senior partner in the D.C. office said to me, Bill, the best thing you can do is offer somebody a job and the worst thing you can do is take it away. And that's absolutely true, no matter how many times you have to do it. Uh, and unfortunately, I've, I've had to do it a number of times, as have you know, most of the people in our business who, who lead offices. So we consolidated back to Silver Spring. The two senior partners in the, in the, in the market for uh, Elcor uh, retired in 93 and 94. So they kind of looked around and- That was John- uh, John Barry and John Trutia. I was kind of the next man up. So I started running the office in 94. When you came, were you, was it just the three of you guys at that time or were there a bunch of people? There were a fair number of folks. Not, we, we were never a big office. We never would have taken an entire floor of an office building. But, you know, I, I had 15 people at rest, in Reston at the peak, and there were probably an equal number in, in our Germantown office. And I'm sorry, they'd moved to Silver Spring at that point. And then a couple people up in, up in New Carrollton. So the company philosophy is with regard to development and, and operating real estate. Have you gone, you know, full vertical with that? Obviously not construction, so you don't have that. But you have property management? We, we did you at that time? And, yes. Yeah. The, the only thing that changed structurally in terms of what we do is when I joined the company, we had our own construction company. Oh, you did? Yeah, we did. But we were building pretty simple buildings. We were building two and three story garden right. apartments and we were building three story office buildings. Coming out of the kind of late, the early 90s, we made the decision really driven by two things. One, we didn't have enough volume to keep the overhead of the construction folks. And two is 
you know, when you're a general contractor, you're also taking on liability. And we were having a lot of risk. And I think the banks were very risk averse coming out of the early 90 crash and started looking for uh, more substantial guarantees on the construction side. And if we were both developer and, const- and, and contractor, there was only one balance sheet to look at, not two. We weren't bonded. A lot of banks wanted to start, started one as you bonding on projects at that point. That's the only function that's really dropped away. The way the company's structured now, though, is we have a, a fair number of project managers who have general contractor backgrounds, and they're responsible for primarily for the construction and also pre-con scheduling, uh, working with, with uh, the general contracting community, looped on the design side in conjunction with the development people. Asset but management you have. Asset management we had, management. property management we've always had, de- development capability, accounting, in-house legal. That's all. None of that has really changed over the years. So coming, evolving then, when did you come to a, a project that was, whoa, is this more than we can handle? Or coming to a point where, <laughs> where, where was a threshold moment where you were going from one level of development to another? Was, is, there, is there one or was it just kind of a slow evolution as far as uh, uh, the I, scale I, of the deals that you were looking at and, and what you were fo- focused on at the time? That's a, that's a great question. We, we scaled up quickly. Let me put it that way. From when to when? Well, I'd, I'd say kind of starting in the mid-90s, and it really, really started when I think about it with our New York and Northern Jersey operation, where they undertook build a suit on a fee basis for the federal government. That was a million square feet in lower Manhattan. They worked on very large building in Jersey was City. Was that the first GSA deal that the company had done? Or was- no, it, I, I did the first one we had done. I think it was the first one. Uh, we did two buildings for the IRS in Martinsburg, West Virginia. Oh. And, uh, was that just an, R- an SFO that you It was on? an, R- yeah, SFO. We bid on it. Not sure how we won, but we did. And it was, it, was, it was actually a really great experience because I had to go find equity in 1990 for oh. a government building in Martinsburg, West wow. Virginia. And uh, I was able to do that and then floated a bond to finance the balance of the... Who was your equity investor, can you say? Yeah, my general contractor. One of the many lessons I've learned over the years, John, is when you have a conversation with somebody, you're never quite sure where it's going to go. So I I picked a general contractor out of Pittsburgh because they were active in that area and they had access to the subcontractors. I was talking to the two owners of the company and I was talking about some of the issues with capital markets in those days. I mean, 1990, yeah. there was nothing, nothing available. Was dead. So they kind of looked at each other and like, well, we can be your equity. How much do you need? I said, oh, guys, I need like a million dollars. And they're like, is that it? We're like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, and I may not need it all. <laughs> and sure enough, I didn't need it all, but I really needed the money. Because our company was, was you know, still struggling to survive. Sure. I needed their money to help get through approvals and design the building. So they end, I ended up doing a design-build contract with the general contractor. They, it's the first and last contract I've ever had where there's no change orders. And um, they put in the equity as our, as our partner, uh, wow. 50-50 partnership. And it was just like, oh, this is easy. Maybe we'll do it again. So we did. We did, did they we, sign on the loan, too, or not? No. No, didn't, didn't need to with a government lease. We okay. had a 20 year so you could get a firm term government lease. So nice. So, uh, and we did a bond issue. And typically, mm-hmm. bond issues, you don't have to give guarantees anyway. That's true. Yeah. 
we did that, that building and then we did an annex to that building. And then I think that became, those were kind of the first GSA deals the company had done. And then I may have the timing off, but I know our Philadelphia office did a build a suit for the Treasury Department. I think piggybacking on what we've been able to do with the IRS. This is for the IRS in Martinsburg. And then that, so our two buildings in Martinsburg are like 130,000 square feet. The building in Philadelphia for Treasury is 135,000 square feet. The building at Foley Square was a million square feet. So you asked about scaling up. Wow. We scaled up pretty quickly. And then we had that going on. The New York office also had taken on a big project at JFK Airport in a public-private partnership with the Port Authority. And then that became, for us, kind of the foundation for what we ended up doing with the patent and trade. How are you able to scale up in in the financing markets to, you know, build the credibility to do that kind of thing? Well, we had a... We had a really good track record of doing what we say we're going to do. And in even coming out of the, the late 80s, early 90s crash, I think we we're one of the few developers who didn't give any property back. We, um, we had to work out some deals. Don't get, don't get me wrong, because as we said earlier, the values had really kind of cratered. Some of our lenders had to take discounts, and we had to put up a lot more cash than we ever wanted to. But we handled ourselves, I think, very honorably. And I think that really stood us in good stead. Um, Did your banking experience help you with that, Bill? I mean, having that the, the REIT workout experience you know, that you had, I, you, I, you it, could it, put yourself in their shoes a little bit, right? I could put myself in their shoes, but, but I did not handle most of the workouts. Oh, no, the workouts were handled out of our, out of our Berwyn, out of the corporate office where right. our president and our CFO and our right. general, and general right. counsel were. But certainly I had a lot of conversations with the lenders on my projects. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, we had done, I, I had done a number of, I won't say innovative, but uh, they were innovative to me, structures in the 70s when I was at the bank. So that, that helped, but most of the negotiation was handled outside of the, outside of the offices, which is probably a good thing to kind of divorce the, the project people who are, you know, personally invested in these things. So did you have institutional relationships coming out? I mean, where, when did the first institutional relationships come to Elkhorn? The, curiosity. Well, we, had, we, certainly, we certainly had people that we had done multiple deals with. But the first time we, uh, the company brought in an institutional partner on the, on the operating side was with Lehman Brothers in 1999. What was the genesis of that relationship and how, that, how did that evolve? Lehman had underwritten the public-private partnership that the company did at JFK Airport. Uh, The company basically redeveloped the International Arrivals Terminal at JFK in the mid to late 90s, primarily financed with a bond deal that Lehman did the underwriting and placed the bonds. How did you get chosen for that deal? How did did the company win that one? Well, uh, we had won the GSA deal, and we had a couple of really, really smart people in our New York office. And not many people back then were willing to take on an airport. We partnered with an airport operator yeah. out of the Netherlands called Schiphol. It's a risky deal. It was a risky deal, but we had we had really we had Morse Diesel as a contractor. We had Schiphol, so we had a very strong team. team. We had, and we had I, I I do not remember who the architect was, but it was a very strong group. I was not involved in the project, mm-hmm. but 100 percent of it was financed with bonds that right. have been placed through, uh, that, were th- that were placed through Lehman. And they probably, br- probably brought in another underwriter as well, but I, I don't remember who. So that kind of, you know, set the stage for us to start looking at really larger, 
projects because they, number one, were underwritten primarily with bonds. So you don't have some of the recourse and I would say careful underwriting that a lot of the commercial banks do, which tend to be a little more conservative. And uh, we just kind of took off. Did Lehman's investment turbocharge the company to some extent at that point, in a way? No, not really. I think basically what happened, John, was I actually gave this some thought before we sat down to talk because I knew one of the questions you were going to ask had to do with our institutional relationships. And Elcor's culture really has not changed from the day I joined the company really? in, terms of, in, in terms of how we underwrite real estate. If there's such a thing as a conservative developer, and there are people who would question whether or not there is, but if, if there is a conservative developer, I believe our company's history demonstrates and current activities demonstrate that we are a conservative developer, relatively speaking. So we really haven't changed our underwriting criteria. The capital return requirements certainly have changed. And leverage requirements have changed. But the basic underwriting of the real estate and what we look at in terms of analyzing risk, risk factors, it doesn't change. It's just that Lehman Brothers did certain things with maybe not with Elcor as much. but with they, they, didn't do, they didn't do it with Elcor. In fact, a very funny story that I thought was kind of cool <laughs> was we had a deal. Uh, it was the first deal we wanted to do in the, in, the, in the district on the residential side with the National City Christian Church and their site. And they had a uh, basically a parking lot and they put out an RFP. We won, we won the bid. And it, uh, yeah, we were very excited about the opportunity. So we organized a big group of Lehman folks to come down from, from New York. And uh, we prepared a book showing them all the projects we were working on. And there was a gentleman in the car who I did not know. We had like a 15-passenger van, I think, actually. So we show him the, the, the Thomas Circle site. And we're like 15 seconds away from having shown him the site and having explained the deal. And, and he turns to the gentleman who was our account guy and said, you've got to do that deal. Well, it turns out, we found out later, that he'd already approved a project like six blocks east of oh Thomas God. Circle. So Thomas Circle looked like the CBD to him. Certainly, Lehman gave us a lot of capabilities to pursue more complicated projects, to pursue larger projects, because they were providing the front money uh, that we needed to get the deals done, and in some cases provided the equity, but not in all cases. A number of times, we, we, we would bring in different capital partners to actually do the, the full transaction, to capitalize the whole thing. We had a couple of deals where Lehman was all the equity, but they were on, on the smaller side. They did not want to be 50 or $100 million investment in an, individ- in an individual project. Except maybe the one me- me- mega project that yeah, I think started around that time. So this will probably take a little time. <laughs> I just took a swig of water. <laughs> it took a long time to, 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 for this project to evolve. And the yes. one I'm talking about is the United States Patent and Trade Office project, which right. is, correct me if I'm wrong, the largest real estate development in one site, government leased in this marketplace. Um, It's actually the largest federal lease by square footage and by dollar in the country. In the country. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So prior to your project, it was scattered a bit, but primarily it was located in Crystal City, the United States Patent and Trade Office, right? Yes. At least two buildings in Crystal City, if not more. Uh, They were in 18 buildings on, I used to know the number exactly, 130-some floors. Wow. 
All yeah. in Crystal City or was All it in Crystal City. I thought it was diversified. Yeah. No. No. Interesting. Yeah. So obviously there was a strong desire for the owner of those buildings, the Charles E. Smith Company at the time, to retain the, the patent and trade office uh, as a tenant going forward. So talk about, you know, how you found out about it and how it evolved, the whole project from, from the start, if you can. Or maybe it <laughs> might take too long. See if we can skip over the... I'll try to capital, ca- keep, keep capitalize. Keep on the high part of the waves here. I, I, I will do my best. And when it started... Yeah. Well, the, the the quick story is it's a, it's a two point four. It was a two point four million square foot build a suit for the federal government. We ended up controlling a site in Alexandria that was owned by Norfolk Southern Railroad, part of a mixed use community called Carlisle, right off Eisenhower Avenue, right, kind of equidistant between the King Street and Eisenhower Avenue uh, Metro. How did you stuff. find that location? Well, it, it, the interesting part is we were the second folks in originally. The solicitation had been out for a while. The railroad had picked another developer, who I will leave unnamed, but was unable to reach agreement with the developer. So in the summer of 96, the railroad put out an RFP to find a developer. And we competed with just about, I I think, some of the most capable developers in the country. For this? Basically for the right to... to to submit an offer to the federal government to build the PTO, the PTO. And they had to move quickly. They had to make a quick decision because the initial round of the, the of qualifications was due in, in December of that year. And it was substantial. We ended up submitting five, five three-inch binders of material uh, in the initial submission. So we went through the process. We got picked we uh, stop you just for a moment. I sure. want to ask you. So, why did you think you could do this, <laughs> <laughs> Hey, John? I signed a seventy-five thousand square foot lease. What's another? You know, what's another? You know, two point three million. <laughs> Number one, the company had done it successfully in New York, so we had that as I had okay. that as support if necessary. Got it. There was a very strong development team already pulled together. There, I mean, SOM was the architect. The plans were, they weren't fully done by any stretch of the imagination, but they were very familiar with the site. We had a very strong civil engineer. We had to scramble to find a contractor because the larger, some of the larger contractors were tied up on other sites and those developers wanted them to be exclusive to those sites. Building your team. Building our team. So I don't know, just felt like something we should try to take a shot at. I'd done a couple of government deals at that point, so I was comfortable in the GSA world. And this is going to sound a little flip, but where the building 100,000 square feet or 2 million square feet, the issues are the same. The scale is just a little bit different and quite a bit different. And you knew what the competition situation was going to be. And I, I, yeah, we would not have gone after it. In fact, we were asked to, do, to be the developer on, on at least one other site that ended up submitting. And we just said, no, there's no chance you're going to win. No, we, just, we don't like your site. We got selected. We'd done a full review of the contract of sale. We had done a full review of the environmental situation, which was serious there because it was a a landfill and a former operating maintenance yard for the railroad. Signed the contract in late September of 96 and had a little bit less than three months to pull together a full submittal. One of the lessons learned for me on that project was I asked the question you asked, but in, in a slightly different form. Jeff Zell was advising the railroad. Yes. 
And I called up Jeff and I said, Jeff, I'm thrilled you picked us. Can you please tell me why? <laughs> and Jeff said, and this is this was a lesson that I think applies to everything we do in our business. He said, Bill, your company was the only company that went out and spent two days in the field with Norfolk Southern's project manager understanding the environmental issues. And they were substan- They were significant. We had a $20 million plus remediation. He said, nobody else did that. And we knew because nobody else had done it that we were going to get retraded. Because once they looked at it, they were going to go, holy mackerel, this is not what we thought. And we had looked at it really hard. And I had a really good project manager who was a really smart guy. And he, he just learned a lot about environmental in that, uh, in that very compressed period of time. And we had done a minimal markup of their contract. So they, know we were, they knew we were serious. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so to the, the lesson that I took out of that was you got to do your homework and you got to be detailed. And sometimes you learn more than you want to know and you end up not doing the deal. But better that than not knowing what you're doing, getting involved, spending money and time, and then finding out, oh, my gosh, so I, sh- a, I should have known about this. There was a decision point once you uncovered all this, literally. Yes. That do we really want to do this. I mean, <laughs> yes, yes, but to the rare, yes, that's true, John. But to the railroad's credit, they had been through a very exhaustive process with the Commonwealth of Virginia. They had gone into a volunteer remediation plan, the VRP, with the Virginia Department of Environmental Quality. So what you had to do was pretty clear. Now it was a five hundred thousand cubic yards of excavation, two hundred thousand of which was contaminated, and seventy five hundred of which had to be burned. Uh, It was so bad. But we were able to quantify that. And as part of our due diligence, we brought in, out of Pennsylvania, actually, a dirt contractor who specialized in cleaning up sites and a company called Weston. They were terrific. And at the end of the the day, we had like a $22.3 million contract with them to clean up the site. And I think it cost us $22.4 for an environmental site of that size, pretty good. My guess is they had practice up in uh, in Bethlehem and places Pro- like that. Probably right? so. Probably <laughs> so. So we so we won it. We went through the bid the bid process. You mentioned there was some opposition from the current landlord. We uh, ended up getting the award in May of '99, but couldn't sign the lease until June of 2000 because of some pending claims from the from the existing, existing landlord. Those got cleaned up. We were ready to close in September of 2001. We all know what happened in September of 2001. Yes. And our bond premium doubled from 21 to $42 million, which totally threw the budget out of balance. Mm. So we had to do some scrambling. Ended up uh, in closing in December of 2001. Started construction immediately. Delivered the first two buildings in late 03 and the final building in April of 05. So the financing of that project was an interesting <laughs> story, too. Yes. I had to pull an all-nighter recently for an, for an unrelated business matter. Somebody said to me, when was the last time you pulled an all-nighter? And I said, I can tell you the exact day. Because <laughs> December 17th, 2001, because of the changes in the, mark, in the 
finance markets. Uh, interest rates went up. Construction costs were moving up. Terrorism insurance. Terrorism insurance. The the rent had gotten locked back in '99 when we submitted our final bid. We could not withdraw our bid because that would have started the process all over again. Did the specs of the building change because of 9/11? I mean, did did you have a security? Not at our cost. No. no. So the federal government picked up all those costs. Well, ba- basically, there really wasn't much. We already had progressive collapse because of Oklahoma City, and we already had certain blast-proof requirements on the bottom floors of the building. So there, there really was no technical change in the building Thank between God. September and, 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 yeah, and December. Uh, yeah. And they also had planned 24-7, 365 security by the Federal Protective Service, armed guards, magnetometers. I mean, they, they had, you know, garages that were not under the building, so they were freestanding. So there are, there are a lot of war stories involved in terms of getting through the approval process. With in, in Alexandria, we had some citizen opposition. Certainly, we had a lot of opposition from the landlord. But I, I will say that I, I that we you know, we clearly stuck it out, and there was some very strong political leadership in Alexandria at the time, at the, in the mayor and the vice mayor, and they really they put their political careers on the line to help us get through the approval process, which we had to get through. Yeah, there was some pain and suffering along the way, but uh, at the end of the day, they said to their colleagues, look, this is a huge financial benefit to the city. We did a fiscal impact study at the city's behest. Greg Leish did it with Delta at the time. The net revenue to the city was enough to pay for a brand new high school, given given their AAA credit rating. So when you go, when we went to community meetings, you know, we had the typical opposition based on, you know, it's going to be lifeless and there's going to be too much traffic. And I think we countered both of those arguments very effectively. And then I would, you know, I, I had over 50 community meetings and nights and weekends. And it was, you know, at the end of the day, I know, I know money may not be that important to you, but I can tell you that I know the high school, the City needs a new high school, needs a new T.C. Williams. This money may not go to that, but it could. You could finance this rent stream from the federal government for 20 years with your bond rating and raise enough money to build a new high school. They didn't, they didn't do that, but they could have. And I think people, we ended up with probably as much citizen support as we had citizen opposition. And that's fairly unusual. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. So let's evolve away from that project to another major undertaking that, you, that the company took on. And, and I don't know the timeline of this one, White Flint Metro Project. Oh, I know the timeline. <laughs> okay. So I'm interested to know, did that cross over with USPTO or was that uh, at a different time? Frame? They were pretty much contemporaneous. The backstory is WMATA had put out a uh, master development prospectus with 37 sites in the DC area in 1996. We looked at all of them, picked five to bid on, and won one. And the one we won was, was the, the 32 acres at the White Flint metro station. So, it, uh, so we were selected for that in 97. It took us until 2000, early 2001 to actually get the master development agreement pulled together. I don't, I don't know if it was the first time that they had done a multi-phase development, but it was one of the few times that they had done it. So... There was learning on our part, and there was learning on, on their part and this as well. this was on a ground lease. This, 
Well, it, originally it was going to be a single ground lease until our Maryland council advised us that as soon as we signed the ground lease, we had to start paying taxes on the entire property, yeah. which did not sound like a good no. idea. So we signed a master development agreement with a schedule for takedowns and a, and a, and a schedule for pricing and a schedule for the mixes, mix of uses, which we, which we accomplished through a rezoning of the site in 2000, either three or four, I'm, I'm not quite sure. So then we undertook developments there, our first two buildings. We did, we, we did one uh, residential high-rise, then we did a second residential high-rise. Then we did a building for the GSA, uh, intended for the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, right at the corner of Mar- Marinelli Road and Rockville Pike. And then currently under construction is a fourth phase of uh, residential, well, a third phase of residential, the fourth phase of the project. That's this weekend. <laughs> there you go. Yes. You've been there more, pre- more recently <laughs> than I have. And then the company has an option to develop the final phase of residential, which is basically between two of the, two of the buildings. Is that the full development? That's the full development on the residential side as the zoning sits today. You have more commercial land? The land between basically the railroad tracks, metro tracks, and a road called Citadel. It's about 10 acres. Yes. The company no longer controls. It's Wamato's, our development agreement lapsed by its terms at the end of 15 years. We had a couple of extensions. We got one extension to try to submit for the Marriott headquarters. But once we were past that, WMATA made a decision to basically take the project, uh, let, let the master development agreement lapse. I'm not quite sure what they're doing with it today. But certainly we told them that we're still interested in trying to do it if, uh, when it gets rebid. Sure. If they do. So those are <clears throat> two major projects. Talk about, so you had those two going on. What else was going on with Elcor at that time? Was that just it, those two projects, or were there other things going? There? No, we had, we had a couple of high-rises in Arlington. We had a high-rise in Merrifield that we converted from a rental to condo back when you couldn't make a mistake in the condo business in 05 and 06. And thankfully, that was our timing, 05 and 06 and not 07 or 08. Uh, I'm sure I'm forgetting. We had two developments in the district, one at Thomas Circle. We had, we redeveloped a school for the District of Columbia, structured that with a, uh, off the value that we identified in a piece of, basically subdivided a school property, built an apartment building on one side and did a, uh, uh, a pilot so that the taxes coming off the multifamily property would pay off the bond so issue was that was floated to build private? a school. It was a public-private partnership with DCPS, public schools, DC public schools, while the control board was still in, in, uh, in operation. So that was an interesting project in that. For the listeners, explain the control board just for a moment. I'll, you may know better than I, John. I'll do my best. But the, the control board was basically a federally appointed board to oversee the district's finances back when the district was struggling. And I don't remember when it started and I don't remember when it ended, but I know it was in place when we were doing the, uh, the Henry Adams House uh, Oyster School uh, transaction. And, and they actually, they did not get in the way. I mean, they were, they were supportive. Um, this was we, in the Wardman Park area? This is 29th and Calvert. Right. right. Yes. And what had happened was the school was slated to be closed. It had been built in the 19, I think 17 or 19, something like that. So it was old. Very rundown, had asbestos, slated to be closed, and the neighborhood organized, brought in the 21st Century School Fund, which is backed by the Ford Foundation, and worked with the district to basically say, rather than 
closed the school down and it was one of the better schools in the district because it's bilingual. They teach in Spanish and in English and it's hard to get in there. A lot of parents want their kids to go there. So the basic outline of the transaction was we would subdivide the property, design an apartment building and build a school at no cost to the district. We had to compete for it. We were one of three finalists. We won. And I think the reason we won, besides our good looks and charm, was that we put the school on the corner, which is where the neighborhood wanted it. And I believe our competitors put the apartment building on the corner. Interesting. Interesting. So we ended up, uh, you know, there were compromises along the way. When I look at, where, when I look at our initial bid and what the, what the district had accepted and what the final structure was, it was night and day. But we stuck with it, and we had some really, really good people on the, on the other side of the table with us from the district who wanted to see that happen. And uh, we were fortunate. We brought in Northwestern Mutual as our partner on the multifamily what side. What was the time frame of this project? Wow. Late 90s. Okay. Late 90s. I think so USPTO. We were in the throes of fighting to get, we've been awarded it, but we're still you know, yeah. dealing with lot, lots of stuff going on there. So this project was well on, well ahead of that. <sighs> yeah, although we, we, we were going through the approvals and kind of wrestling with design and all that at, at about the same time. I have to say that the, 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 the Oyster School project, the, the, the day we went back and dedicated the school with DC council members there and the principal of the school, who was a wonderful woman, she's no longer the principal, I think she retired, was probably one of the most rewarding days I've had in the business. Really? Because it was the first new school built in the district in over 20 years. And these kids were like super excited to see this brand spanking new building. And you had the financial control board that was running the city. And at that time, the financing, financing situation in the District of Columbia was very challenging. was very challenging. Yeah. yeah. We, 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 I tell you, we were very fortunate to bring in Northwestern Mutual as our partner. We had done, I think, I may have our timing off. We did three deals with Northwestern Mutual kind of in the late 90s. Is that the first one you did with them? I think it was the first one we did. And they were, uh, they were great to work with. They, they gave us some credit support that, that had to be in place for the bonds and for the school. And it turned out to be a really good deal for them and for, and for us and the district. So, Bill, we've, uh, we've talked a lot about projects. So I want to take the conversation a little different direction now and Talk a little bit about the real estate markets and, you know, you've been here now for, in this market, uh, well, let's see, <laughs> coming up on 40 years in this yeah. market, right? So you've seen a lot of changes over the years in the Washington, D.C. area and also in the, both the office and residential markets. Talk about a little bit about some of the trends that are going on today that, you know, are amazing to you compared to what, what business was like back in 1982 when you first started in the business and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Both on, the, on the residential development and, and ownership side, as well as on the commercial office building side. Okay. Yeah. I, and I'm, I'm probably less qualified to talk about the office building side, John, than, than I own the residential side. Because okay. a lot of what, the, the one part we didn't get to was we, we've become very much of a residential mixed use developer in the last, over the last, I'd say 10 years. So we're not the guys building, you know, office buildings in downtown DC, although certainly capable of doing build suits or if it's part of a mixed use development, certainly could do an office building there, but it's not the, not the primary objective of what the company is looking to do right now. 
I think on the, on the multifamily side, probably the biggest change is just technology. I, I mean, I can remember when I first came to the company, I would have spreadsheets and a, a lot of pencils with erasers. And if I had to make a change, I had to basically erase and redo. And clearly the advent of computers and all the things that we can now do on our phones, it's the prehistoric age versus, you know, the new age. And I think that's great. I think the danger is that everything looks good on a computer. All the outputs look good. The, pro- the issue is making sure the inputs are right. And as I said earlier, I don't think the basic factors that you have to look at as a developer have really changed over the years. Your capital requirements have changed, absolutely. Your leverage ratios have changed, absolutely. You know, what people expect out of the real estate chain has changed, absolutely. The design has changed. But that's all stuff you're going to look at anyway. How about um, how the space has been used? Well, clearly, clearly, those are huge changes. I mean, parking is a great example. I mean, we used to do garden apartments in the suburbs, and we would park two, two parking spaces per unit. You had to. Mm-hmm. In some cases, more, depending upon if you had a lot of two- and three-bedroom units. Now, you, a lot of the development now is, is high-rise. We went from, I think, our first Arlington project, we, we parked it at 1.2 or 1.3. I think some of the recent projects this company's done in the district are at 0.5. A lot of that's driven by, you know, the, the economy we're in now where you got a phone and you can get a car whenever you want it and you can get wherever you want to be and you can have everything delivered whenever you want it and not have to move. It's impacted, I think, the amount of space people need. So clearly our units are getting, typically getting smaller and smaller. It's certainly impacted the common areas. I mean, package storage, food storage, you know, transit information, the type of amenities people are looking for. It's all very different. I mean, when I, when I designed my first project out in Manassas, we had a clubhouse with a swimming pool, a tennis court, very small fitness center, and that was about it. And now you go into one, an Elcor project or our competitors' projects, and there were a whole lot more amenities than that, than that available to the tenant. I just saw something this morning. I still get some information from the company on what's going on. And there's now, the company now has a mobile app for our projects. Mm-hmm. And a tenant can pay their rent. A tenant can put in a maintenance request with photos attached. They can find out what's going on in the neighborhood. They can find out where the metro trains are. I mean, that's all very much changed. And I think for the better. But I think you've also seen clearly pressures on the percentage of their income that people have to pay to, to live in the D.C. area. How about the mindset of your customer? How have they changed over the years? I mean, the millennials have a totally different way of looking at operating and or occupying property, right? So based on what, what we did as children. And yeah, so it's, well, it's, it's, it's as I said, it's, it's, very, well, it's just very service-oriented. You've you got to be tied in technologically. We've actually put our own backbone, and I'll, I will describe this inaccurately because I'm a tech dinosaur, but we basically have in, our, in a couple, number of our buildings – a system where somebody can come in and they don't need to call Comcast or they don't need to call Verizon. They just can plug into our system. And we're seeing a 70 to 75% adoption rate because kids are coming out of college. And when you go to college, you plug in, you get a password, and right. boom, you're up. Right. Well, you can do that in our buildings now. And not just our buildings. I'm sure others are doing it as well. 
So, so there are some companies now that are coming in to lease on a master lease basis apartment buildings right. to relet primarily for short-term uses. Mm-hmm. Is that a business that you see growing in, in this marketplace or how do you see that? I think it's a viable business. I'd be a little concerned about having too much space in any one of our buildings dedicated to that. Number one, when the lease expires, everybody moves out at the same time, which That's is right. not a good thing for an apartment building. No. And two, I, it almost feels a little bit like you could be in a, in, a, in a shared office space type situation where the market gets saturated. You have too many providers of that. And we've all seen what happened to WeWorks. And yes. you know, it could happen as well on the residential side of things. But I've been retired for over a year, so I don't need to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it just, and there's an article in today's, uh, I think it's Globe Street or uh, BizNow, about the incredible compression of leases in every sector of our industry, mm-hmm. or of time. So people want more flexibility. They want more mobility. They don't want to be locked into a long-term obligation, it seems. Right. Yeah. The question is, what's, what is a long-term obligation? Is one year a long-term obligation? Apparently it is, uh, because there's a market for this. But what I'm hearing a little bit, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's maybe 10 to 15% of the market is appropriate. Yeah, yeah I, I think you know, that's as good a guess as any, John. I know when somebody comes in, we've got all the programs you want to have in terms of uh, LRO or whatever it is to figure out your pricing and all that. And Right. If somebody comes in and says, I want a seven-month lease, we give them the seven-month lease. They're paying a big premium for that. You know, and I think some people clearly are willing to pay that, but I can't imagine that a lot of people are going to say, I'd rather pay another 400 bucks a month and be able to get out five months earlier than pay 400 bucks a month less. You know, I, I'm going to be here at least a year, you would think. So I don't think we've seen a huge change in the terms of, in the, the term of our leases. And we haven't seen a big turn, at least the numbers I've seen within our portfolio. We haven't seen much of a change in the turnover rate. Interesting. It, yeah. It, it just, you know, a lot of people come to D.C., they like it, they stay. Yeah, a lot of people leave too. But I think if you come to D.C. and you're in like our, one of our union market buildings and you like being in union market and you got a good job, you know, you can, you can stay there a couple of years. So from the time you did the Oyster School deal, which was the, the late, late 90s. Late 90s, right. To, to today, what changes have you seen in the district, of, just in the District of Columbia, since that time? <laughs> Talk about night and day. Yes, I, I'll answer that question by telling you what all my kids told me. I, we, okay. we got three kids. All right. uh, they're all grown. Yep. Uh, both boys are in real estate, and one of my sons is with Elcor. The other one's out in Denver. And all three of them have they were thirty eight, thirty six, and thirty. All three of them have come back to DC or. After being away for a while, right, and don't recognize the district. There are so many cool places to go that simply did not exist when they were in high school. They went to Churchill High School. They graduated between '99 and 2007. But boy, when they come back, they're heading downtown, and whether it's 14th Street, whether it's the Wharf, Union Market, you know, pick your location. It's all kind of, it's all good. So. What you've seen is uh, obviously a move, move eastward yeah. from the time that, you know, you and I started here in Washington back in the mid-80s. Oh, yeah. You would not go across 14th Street to the east. Right, right. No. Certainly to look at real estate deals. You know, of course, the late 
you know, right around 1988, 89, it started, the East End started to come in in the early 90s. It really right. started to accelerate. Right. A bit. At least on the office side. Yeah. I think the residential was a little bit slower to come. Right. I think it was a generational change mm-hmm. uh, when that actually occurred, it seems to me. What other things have you seen in D.C. that since you've been here that have kind of interested you or, you know, amazed you or things that have changed in this marketplace, if anything? <laughs> I don't know if I've been bludgeoned into submission by the marketplace or not, John. Not a whole lot has changed, I think, in terms of the public view of real estate, which to me is unfortunate. You know, for my first couple of years, uh, when I first got into the industry, I was, my friends were saying, oh, you know, you want to pave, you know, you want to pave over the world, put asphalt everywhere. And it took me a couple of years to say to myself, yeah, number one, number, number one, that's not true. And number two, everybody lives or works or shops in a developer's building at the end of the day, except for obviously corporate related headquarters type stuff. So, you know, I actually think the industry has an undeserved reputation for being coming in, doing the deal, making the money and and moving on to the the next uh, next opportunity. I, I just don't think that's the case. And I think more and more with the institutionalization of the business and the need to fit into communities and have the right context for your buildings. As time gone on, I've become more and more proud of what, you know, we as a company and what we as an industry have accomplished. I mean, uh, we take a lot of risk. It's a hard job. Uh, I don't think people realize that. There is no such thing as an overnight success in this business. I'm sorry. (laughs) I wish there was. It only took me 37 years. What I've followed and seen, it's hard to find, other than maybe going into a hospital and doing surgery as a surgeon, there aren't many jobs that have so much intricacy, you know, of different things. And I taught taught a, a development class last year with my ULI mentor group, and we showed a timeline of a development project from the idea to the finished project. And there were, it were eight parallel tracks of different events going on simultaneously of a project that would take anywhere from one to 10 years, depending yeah. on the project, USPTO being an example, probably at the longer really, end of that. Really, really good example. Yeah. I worked on that no. deal for for nine years. So you could go Start over for five minutes, you could talk about all the different disciplines that were going on oh. simultaneously. Yes. At that time. Yeah. So it's a complex business. I promise the listeners, this is the last time I will mention PTO. But we had a, a partnering session. It was one of the requirements of the lease. So the GSA wanted kind of everybody there. So I, we had architects, engineers, all the subcontractors and government people. We probably had 100 people in the room, lawyers, everything. And the moderator said, okay, I want everybody to draw a picture of what you conceive as your role, what you perceive as your role in this project. So the electricians are drawing light bulbs and the the steel guys are drawing columns and the concrete guys are showing a mixer. I'm not an artist. The architect drew drew some really cool stuff. So I drew a stick figure that was intended to be somebody controlling a, a marionette with a bunch of strings going mm-hmm. down to different yeah. functions. And, and the moderator looked at me and said, well, you're obviously not an, not an artist. 
what is this? I said, I'm the puppet master. He said, I said, I don't know nearly as much as everybody else in this room knows in their specific disciplines. That's why I picked a really good team because they've got to make me look good. But at the end of the day, I'm the guy who's got to pull the string and say, this is what we're doing. With imperfect knowledge and not knowing whether or not that's going to be a right decision for probably three to five years. And that, that literally is the case. When, when, I, when I do some career counseling with younger folks, either already in the business or looking to get into the business, on the development side, my main caution to them is if you need immediate reward or if you're not a patient person, this is not a business for you because the rewards come a long time after, your, after the, at the actions you put in place to make that happen. You don't know if a project is going to work because there's so many factors you don't control. To me, that's one of the big lessons is it takes a lot of patience and a lot of critical thinking. And going back to my college and graduate school days, I think the liberal arts education that I was fortunate enough to have was invaluable uh, for me in terms of critical thinking, ability to communicate, ability to both persuade people and carefully listen to people, and then filter out what I needed and how could I get them to do what they needed to do? And how could I give them direction without just saying, do it? When did you realize that that became kind of your mantra? I mean, the the ability to have the patience and perseverance to go through what you went through. I mean, as a banker, you it's, that was transaction oriented. You were doing deals. When did you realize that, you know, this really is a better fit for me because I do have this ability to kind of, go through all this to be able to, to wait for the award. I, th- I think, where did it, that come from? you know, John, I think it, it actually is. Um, I think I realized it when I had to open an office by myself in 1985. And I realized I was, I mean, I certainly, I had support within the company, but that was kind of the first time that the decisions I was making were really my decisions. I mean, other people would give me opinions, but in terms of building the staff and looking for the, for the, for the real estate to develop, it was, it was on me. And I think at that point, I started to realize this is going to take some time. <laughs> this, is, this is not easy. I wish it was easier, but it's not. And I think probably there, and it, it hasn't changed in the 30 plus years since then. Did raising children help you with that thought process? <laughs> Gave me some gray hair. Yeah. I, mean, I won't call him out by name. Uh, it's patience. No, I, I've always been a patient person, John. I just, I just have. I, I never, I didn't, I didn't go into business saying I'm going to make X amount of dollars by the time I'm 30 or 35 or right. 40. I just wanted to, you know, do a good job, raise a good family. Thankfully, I have a wonderful wife who was <laughs> more instrumental probably than me in that. But I was fortunate. In raising the kids that, number one, my, we were able to, st- my wife was able to stay at home, which was wonderful. And the kids give her all the credit. And I was also able to have a job where I could come home, have dinner with the family, which my dad, by the way, always used to do. He was always, he'd get off the train. We'd always have dinner at six o'clock. Mm-hmm. And that was important to us growing up. And it became important to me as a parent once we had, you know, the kids. But then the kids would get their homework done and I'd I always had a full briefcase and I would sit at the kitchen table and work another couple hours and then, you know, get up and 
rinse and repeat, do it, do it again and again and again. And I was fortunate in that I was running the office. So my kids all ran track uh, in, in high school uh, and cross country and swam. You, you, yeah, we, we crossed paths in the, in the swimming circuit. <laughs> and so I had the ability I could I could uh, my office was five minutes from high school. I could go over, watch my kids run, go back to work. So I was very, very fortunate in having that kind of flexibility. And, and I would try to give that kind of flexibility to my employees as well. And I think as a result, we had a very loyal, hardworking group of people who would, you know, go the extra mile when it was necessary. Other than patience, what other advice would you give young people in the development business? I'd say stay true to your values. When I first started in the business, you'd see a deal and it's like, oh, I've got to get this deal. There's always another deal. And sometimes when people are making deals and you can't understand how the heck they made that work, sometimes they don't. So I'd say that, I'd say be prepared to fail. Learn from your failures because you're going to fail. You're going to make mistakes. I can't tell you how many mistakes I've made on every single project. It may not look that way from the outside, but you're going to make mistakes. I'd say also when, you have the, when you're in a position of responsibility, work with people that you want to work with. There are a lot of really, really good people in our business. And I don't mean just from the development side, but also on the banking side, the legal side, the design what side. What are you looking for in the people that work for you, Bill? Kind of honesty, being able to stand up and say, I got a problem. One of the big mistakes I made on PTO, uh, sorry, I mentioned it again, but one of the big mistakes I made was we had some serious issues, particularly on the financing side, and I did not put my hand up nearly early enough. I mean, I was an owner of the company. I was a senior principal. I should have known better. And I tried to solve it myself. And at the end of the day, there are a lot of really smart people out there. And the more people you can let in and show your vulnerability, show your frailty. We all have, you know, we're not all, we're not all perfect to what we do. But there are a lot of people out there who are probably better at certain aspects of your job than you are. And you ought to call on them and you ought to analyze what they tell you and figure out whether or not that's what you want to do. But I, I really think rely, learning to trust others which gets back to picking the right people on your team, because none of us do this by ourselves. No. Can't. No. Just can't. If your 25-year-old self were sitting here today, what would you tell them? I think the only thing I'd add, John, would be to, would be to trust your, your internal values. We all know the difference between right and wrong, and just do what you know is right. And if it means passing on a deal, or if it means having to sit down with a coworker and say, look, guy, you're not... You're not getting the job done. Here's what you got to do to get better. You got to be frank with people, which was hard for me as a 25-year-old. You know, just uh, I was a 25-year-old banker, so I knew a whole lot less than I think I know now. But really not much more than what I'd said earlier. I I would also say, I would tell my 25-year-old self, you married really well, and you were fortunate to have three wonderful kids. Like I said, two of whom are in the business. And one of whom I think is a pretty good developer. I feel pretty good about that. I feel very good about that. And my daughter, who's not the developer, or not in the real estate business, is actually a PhD in clinical psychology and works with, uh, with sick kids out of Stanford Hospital. So I'm very proud of her as well. So we're, we've been very fortunate. Final question, Bill. If you sure. put a billboard on the Capitol Beltway, the message for millions to see, what would it say? You gave me a heads up on this one, John, and I've, I've written this down and scratched it out like 20 times. 
but I wanted to get it down to enough words so somebody wouldn't crash into the person in front of them. So I said, give more than you take and be grateful. That, that, would, sounds be, great. that would be my advice. That's excellent. Bill, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. John, this, this has been a pleasure. Thank I you. was uh, honored to be asked and to join your pantheon of <laughs> podcasts. Look forward to seeing the finished product or hearing the finished product. Thank you, sir. Thank appreciate you. your time. Bye-bye. Bye.